Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Two seconds. He'll get a shot off on the way. Got it. Finds Ward and there's your game winner. On the move, on the way. Tucker will score. Sean Tucker with a touchdown. Gillen. Got it. Aaron, you win. Are you serious? Five down. One to go. Syracuse is playing for the national title. It's too long, and Syracuse is your national champion. Who's out? What's up, Syracuse fans? It's Mike McAllister from AllSyracuse.com, part of the Sports Illustrated Network, with episode 28 of the Believe in Syracuse podcast, presented by Bet Online and Hoffman Sausage Company. I am here with the one and only Kyle F., and we are here to talk about Syracuse basketball's loss to Wake Forest. There is a ton to get into from this game. The good, the bad, the ugly, officiating, missed shots, Jesse Edwards not staying on the floor. Benny Williams playing a season high in minutes. Uh, Syracuse playing competent defense for more than a half. Samir Torrance only getting five minutes. And of course, looking ahead to Syracuse's next opponent, the Pittsburgh Panthers. But we must start by asking how Kyle is doing today. Kyle, how are you? You know, Mike, it started off with a, it was a rough day today. Uh, obviously, we lost last night. I was tough. And then in the span of 24 hours, my soccer team, Arsenal, lost to a uh, second division side. And the Saints won their game against the Falcons, but lost because Matthew Stafford doesn't know how to throw the ball more than 30 yards downfield. Uh, it was it was a rough, rough, uh, at least last hour especially, because the game ended only an hour ago. Um, really hurting today. But you know what? I'm happy for your Eagles during the playoffs. I'm, I'm happy for you. We are. We we get the defending Super Bowl champions and playoff Tom Brady as a reward. So hooray but, for that. But hey, if you play anywhere like you did against us, we held them to three points this season. I True. have faith in you. True. I, I was kind of hoping to get the Rams. Um, they are more talented top to bottom than Tampa Bay is. But the Matthew Stafford being, you know, having a lot of pressure on his shoulders factor, I thought might help, but uh, we'll see how it goes. The Eagles have played Tampa Bay already this year. You never know. Weird things happen in the playoffs, but that's not why you guys are all here to hear us break down the Philadelphia Eagles, Tampa Bay Buccaneers playoff game. Although we could spend a lot of time doing that if you really wanted, but I know you're here for Syracuse basketball. We're back in better than ever, a new web interface for the rest of the NBA season and more props, odds, and lines than ever before. Bet online remains your number one spot for all the basketball and football action this season. Head to the new updated desktop or mobile website to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Just use our promo code Believe 50 B-L-E-A-V-50, to receive your bonus. From basketball, football, NHL, boxing, and UFC, right to your favorite Vegas casino games, don't wait to take advantage of the amazing offers available for the 2021 season. Bet online is the fastest and easiest way to bet all your favorite sports. Bet online where the game starts. The play that's getting the most attention from this game, which is Syracuse inbounding the ball at the end of regulation. Here's, here's the scenario briefly recapped. Syracuse is up by two and had the ball. Syracuse turns it over 
and Wake Forest is coming down the other end. There's under 20 seconds to go. They kick it out into the corner to Isaiah Musius. He steps on the the uh, end line and turns it over. There's 13 seconds to go. The problem is because the officials had called so few fouls on Wake Forest, they still had a foul to give. So Syracuse had to inbound the ball not once, but twice. They inbound the ball the first time. Only a second or so goes off the clock, and Syracuse has to inbound the ball a second time. On the second inbound, they sent Joe Girard long, but Wake Forest covered it. So the secondary read was back to Buddy Beheim, who had position on uh, his defender, which I believe was um, Musius, and... Jimmy Beheim was the inbounder. He throws a bounce pass to Buddy. And as the ball is getting there, Musius has his hand on Buddy's back. That starts to push Buddy forward like he's losing his balance, which suggests a push. Then um, Dallas Walton, who is their uh, Wake Forest center, he was guarding the inbound pass. And as soon as the ball was passed to Buddy, he turns and goes to try to defend Buddy, trap him, or deflect the ball or something. What he ends up doing is he crashes his whole body into Buddy's hip and deflects the ball out of bounds. Neither of the fouls were called. The ball was called off of Buddy Beheim. They go to replay and review it. You can see on the replay that his hand gets in there and knocks the ball because his hand moves. You can see when it hits the ball, his fingers move. Buddy's fingers never move. That should indicate that it was off of Wake Forest. Syracuse should have gotten the ball back with another chance to inbound. Instead, they award the ball to Wake Forest. Wake Forest scores to send the game into overtime. Um, I'll give my reaction before we go to Kyle. I think two things. One, um, Syracuse made the inbounds pass a little bit more difficult than it needed to be with trying to throw it to Buddy in a corner with a couple of defenders there. That puts him in a bad situation. Now, there's there's so little time left that they can't really try to trap him and force a turnover. They have to foul right away. So I get that. But putting him in that scenario kind of leaves you open for deflection it bouncing off your knee, whatever um, based on the spot in the floor they were at, you know, maybe they want to try to go a little bit more towards half court instead of towards, you know, the out of the, the end line, but either way, buddy had positioned himself well so that he was fully in front of Musius. And if not for being fouled twice and the ball being deflected, the ball bounces right to Buddy as it was the exact same thing that had been done the play before. It bounces right back to him. He catches the ball. He is fouled. He goes to the free throw line with a chance to ice the game. Um, the officials blew this. There's no question. While Syracuse made it difficult for themselves in, in some respects, there were two fouls on that, that Wake Forest committed on Buddy Beheim, And the ball was clearly off of Wake Forest. It was part of a larger theme in this game with the officiating, and we will certainly get to that um, later on. But yeah, I, I just I think Syracuse put themselves in a great position to steal a win at the end of regulation, and it felt like when that didn't happen, that going into overtime, all of the momentum was in Wake Forest's hands, 
because frankly, the officials just screwed up the way that that play went down. There's no guarantee that Buddy makes the free throws. He had a front end of a one and one. If he misses the front end, Wake Forest is going to come down with a chance to, to tie or win anyway. But the way that it went down significantly impacted the way that the game ended up um, with the outcome of the game. And it was, it was just a poorly officiated sequence all around. I mean, I couldn't have said it better that it was, it was poorly officiated all around. Uh, It shouldn't have gotten to the point where the ball who it touched went off of last was the impact on it. It should have been a foul called on one of them. I, as somebody who was a product of playing uh, park and rec basketball in my town, I can guarantee you those refs would have done better than Ted Valentine and his crew did. I think that's the best way to say it is I don't know how you miss any of that. Or at least when you're reviewing it, you are basically given all the camera angles you need and you're given the shots to see and you can see who the ball goes off of. Not tough. It's not rocket science. You're given the angles. You're given the time to check. You see it, and you see it goes off of Wake, and he just goes, you know what? No. It's all, that's off of Buddy Beheim. clearly. I don't know what he saw. I have no idea. It's, it's, it's inexcusable. I know something the NBA has been doing uh, the past few years especially is they've been releasing the two-minute uh, drill, essentially, plus overtime, for all officials of every NBA game that you'll get all the call, the calls, especially the ones that were missed, basically breaking down the last two minutes of every NBA game, them going through it being like, was this call missed? Yes. No. Was there something missed here? There they go in in depth, like crazy. And you can see how well officiating crews did in the final two minutes of a game, because again, as we all know, in tight games, that's where it's decided the last two minutes before that doesn't really matter at the end of a game. It's those last two minutes, which matter most. I would love to see the last two minutes in overtime from this crew. I would love to see that because it would be littered with missed calls, too many calls, not seeing the ball who it's off of. It would just be a, a it was, it's like matching on your home back, homework back and it's all red. That's what this would have been. That would have been a 55 overall out of like 200. Everything's in red. And it's got that see me after class thing with your teacher's name written on it. That's what it would have had. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I, I, I don't honestly know what, what to do with, with that situation. It's just, you know, it's, uh, it's unfortunate. Um, Bayheim's in a position where if he says anything about it, he gets fined which I think is also a problem. Why are you protecting the officials in such a way? Like what, honestly, what harm does it do if a coach comes to a press conference and says, we lost that game because of the officials. Honestly, other than the officials having hurt feelings, what, what really is the harm of that? And the fact that you're finding it, if even if they're right, you're finding it. If Bayheim came in and said, hey, the officials screwed up that sequence right there. We had other things that we could have done to win the game, which is true. But the officials screwed that up. Bayheim gets fined. Why? For stating his opinion on, on part of the, the reason that the game ended the way it did? I, I don't understand that either. Um, but again, it, we'll discuss more about the officiating a little bit later. 
It's tailgating season and no one does it better than Hoffman's Sausage Company. Beer Bratwurst, Jalapeno Cheddar Sausage, Kabasi, and Bun Length Chicken Sausage. Add them to the menu with classic German Franks and Snappy Grillers, and fans will go wild. Proudly made in New York since 1879, when you bite into a Hoffman, you experience a little bit of upstate history. Taste tells, Hoffman is a proud partner of Syracuse University Athletics. And this this kind of plays into it, but we're we're going to kind of avoid the whether or not they were legitimate calls thing at the moment. But Jesse Edwards staying on the floor. This has been an issue in the past. Now, the previous two games, he's played, I believe, 28 minutes and 38 minutes or 31 and 38, something like that um, against Virginia and Miami. So he had been doing a better job at staying on the floor. Now he fouled out of both of them, but when you're getting over 30 minutes from him, if he's going to foul out, you feel better than um, in this one, he played 20. And it was clear that when he was on the floor, Syracuse is the better team. Now it's not even a question. Syracuse was the better team when he was on the floor. All you need to know to reflect that is the plus minus, which is not a perfect stat, but it is an interesting thing to look at. He was the number one player for either team in plus minus. He was that plus 13. That seems good, it does seem pretty good. He was plus 13 in 20 minutes. That means the 20 minutes that he was out on the floor, Syracuse outscored Wake Forest by 13 points. It's, he was his impact on the game. You look at his stats, six points, five rebounds, two assists, a block and a couple steals. And you go, okay, a decent day, not a huge day, but just his presence because when he was in the game, Wake Forest flat out refused to go inside. They just flat out refused to. That's what happens when you're the best shot blocker in the ACC. Yes. So, you know, I, I just, I think it's one of those things where he had shown improvement in this area and staying on the floor. His impact on the game is, is pretty clear, but every once in a while, when you're learning something and, and he admitted after the game in his post-game press conference, this is not something that he is used to in terms of having to watch contesting a play or not contest to play his final foul Wake Forest was in transition, had a transition layup. He contested it and fouled the guy to try to prevent an easy layup. I get that, but he's got to let that go so we can stay on the floor. He's not used to that mentality. He hadn't played basketball for that many years when he came to Syracuse. This is all learning for him. And some of it is still not instinctual. This is part of that. And when you're learning to make something instinctual, sometimes you revert back to your prior instincts. And I think that's what this was. But there's no question they need him to stay on the floor. You're right. They need him to stay on the floor, and this will come with time. The fact that he has played this well, this quickly, is a very promising thing, is what my big takeaway is from just his play. And again, he played 20 minutes. If he was on the rest of the game, we would have won that game. There's no question about it. it. It will come with time. It will come with him playing more. Again, he had a good game. He is the best shot blocker in the ACC. And he fouls out of most games. That should tell you how far above he is everyone else shot blocking. He is so dominant down low. That is what we've wanted for years. A big shot blocking center who no one wants to go and face. If Rudy Gobert is down low, 
No one in the NBA wants to go down there. That is why in the playoffs, the Clippers dragged him out because they were like, we're not going down there because you're going to block every shot. That's what teams are going to have to start doing to Jesse Edwards. And that makes it so our defense is better because he's not coming out. He's going to sit in the middle of that zone. He is perfect for the zone for as an interior defender. And it's awesome. We just need him to stay on the floor more. And as you said, it's instinctual. He will learn. He is learning this game still. He has not been playing since he was two years old. It's going to take him some time to get used to the game, to get up to speed with it. And again, to change your instincts is not something easily done. A tiger doesn't change his stripes like on the spot. That's not how that works. It'll take him a a year or so to get used to it. But if this is a sign of things to come, I'm happy with it. And I'll live with the the one game loss if that's what it has to be done. Absolutely. Um, Jesse Edwards has shown tremendous improvement this year. Um, Just think about where Syracuse has been in the last few years and the fact that we're talking about the starting center needs to stay on the floor because of how much of of an impact he has on the game and how – that has really not been the case in the last handful of years. At Syracuse, the center position was a large weakness. I love and it is Pascal a major Chuk- strength. I love Pascal Chukwu. He <laughs> ate it. He wasn't it. No, he's he was a very good shot blocker, rim protector, defender. He gave you nothing offensively. He was an okay rebounder. Um, he wasn't all that strong in there. He was a little bit, you know, on on the weak side. He was still, you know, quite skinny. Um, Edwards has bulked up. He is a very good offensive player uh, for his position. He's a good shot blocker. He just makes such a difference. Um, so I love Marek Dolajai, but he was not a center. And no. he, really, he was only good at taking charges. Yes, yes, he was. Uh, and losing teeth against Georgetown. He was, he was very good at that as well. But, um, you know, Edwards has fouled out five games in a row. He needs to stop that, obviously. But, um you know, we'll we'll see how it goes going forward. The, the the other thing I thought was interesting is Benny Williams playing a season high 24 minutes. That is a good thing for a few reasons. First off, he made two mid-range jumpers in this game. His shot looked looked a little bit better. It looked like it was he was more comfortable. As soon as the ball was passed to him and he was open, he took the shot. He did that several more times. He ended up two for seven. Um, after starting either two for two or two for three, but you know, he's, he's still developing on that end. Um, he did some good things defensively in terms of his rotation. He's a little bit quicker. He's a little bit more athletic, um, but he wasn't perfect. He made some mistakes. He wasn't great on the boards. He only had two rebounds in, in 24 minutes, which he, he needs to be better there. No doubt. Bayheim said as much after the game, but even though, he made some mistakes. He wasn't great on the boards. Beheim still left him in. Left him in for 24 minutes in a game that was close and frankly was important for Syracuse. So the fact that he was willing to do that, I think tells me that Benny Williams is working very hard behind the scenes because Beheim rewards that if he sees that during practice, during individual workouts, film study, all of that. And because of that and what he's showing in practice, he's earning the trust of the coaching staff, which is why he's able to be left out there. Yes, he needs to give you, give Syracuse more on the boards. Yes, he can do a little bit more defensively in terms of creating turnovers and things of that nature, as opposed to just making the right rotations. 
but I'm encouraged by Benny Williams' body language, his willingness to take shots, Bayheim not yanking him after he takes shots when he misses them, and um, Bayheim leaving him out there through some mistakes as well. I guarantee before this game, Bayheim basically gave him the green light. He said, obviously, you're going to get more game time. It helps when Jesse Edwards goes out and all of a sudden you need to play some play more bigger guys to rotate better. That aids that a little bit. Um, but I guarantee before the game, they told him, you have the green light, go play. And he did well, but he looked a bit timid. I think it gives him a, more, a game or two and he will get into it more. He'll get his stride more. Because again, as he said, he's earning the trust of the coaching staff. He's going to get more minutes. But as anyone knows, no one their first game looks perfect. That it takes a lot of guys a second who don't have that killer instinct that are not LeBron James. It takes you, you a second to get into it, to understand what's happening, and kind of figure out exactly what you need to do. And it was promising seeing, as you said, those two jumpers looked real nice and smooth. Uh, he did miss his other five shots. Two of them were threes. But again, the fact that he took them was a positive thing because, as we said a couple episodes ago, we need players outside of Bayheim to start scoring more. Outside of Buddy, players got to put up shots. And to see him shoot the ball was promising. Again, not all of them went in, but he will shoot the ball more. It looks good. And if he can get himself defensively in check, especially when it comes to having to rebound, this is another one of those positives. We're taking more positives than negatives away from this game, but that's just what it was. We should have won the game. It looked We played really well in terms of things we've done poorly recently. I'm, again, I'm very positive on Benny Williams. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think very encouraging. Um, and as you said that there, there's more positive than negative to take away from this game. And, and I tend to agree with you. And I think one of the, the main silver linings, if you're looking for it in this game, um, you know, there, we're going to get into, uh, probably the biggest area, uh, uh, the biggest issue for Syracuse in this game. Um, not counting the officials, but as far as what Syracuse did play wise, play playing wise, um, but the, the most encouraging thing to me was Syracuse's defense because it was the first time all season that they played at least competent defense, non embarrassingly bad defense for two halves. You know, we know that that was the issue against Miami, right? Syracuse is up by 14 at the half, and then they played terrible defense and allowed 58 points for Miami in the second half. Uh, Syracuse was tied with Virginia in the first half, and then Virginia shot like 65% in the second half and won the game. So, you know, in this half, um, Wake Forest scored 38 points in the first half, but they started out making – a bunch of shots. They were on pace after the first three minutes to score about 60 points in the first half. And they ended up with 38. So both teams actually started out very hot in, in the first half. And in the second half, Wake Forest only scored 31 in both halves. They only shot about 42 or so percent, 42, 43%. And Wake Forest averages over 80 averaged over 80 points per game coming in. Syracuse held them to 69 in regulation. 
they were shooting the ball at a 48% clip coming into this game. Syracuse held them the 42% through regulation. They ended up being 43 after overtime. So Syracuse held one of the best offensive teams in the ACC, 11 points under their season average, 6% under their shooting percentage average. And just watching it from the naked eye outside of the numbers, Syracuse is out of position less frequently than they had been in previous games. They closed out on shooters better. They stayed at home on shooters better. Uh, Wake Forest was shooting a lot of three-pointers. As I mentioned, they were almost refusing to go inside when Jesse was in the game. And Syracuse played well on the perimeter. And I think that's what you need to do if you are Syracuse, is defend the three ball well, allow teams to go inside, and let Jesse protect the rim. So um, they did that. I think they made a couple of adjustments there. They kind of flipped back and forth between the traditional 2-3 and the 1-1-3. The one, one, um, so I think that confused Wake Forest a little bit as well. But, um, you know, that's that's probably my biggest takeaway from this game. If you're looking at what Syracuse can do the rest of the season, how do they win games and try to keep Bayheim's um, non-losing season streak alive? It's by playing defense like they did against Wake Forest. They do that the rest of the year. They'll get enough wins. We have hammered Syracuse defense every week. We've had the podcast every week. It's been defense is not good enough. It needs to get better. The defense is not rotating well enough. They're missing their assignments. They're just letting up open threes, all these things. As you said, they played well. They finally did it. It felt good. We said last episode, we need to see them play well, at least in the second half to start. And then we'll go from there. They played well, all, played well all game. Again, if you let up 69 points and the fact that our offense played as poorly as it did, but we were still in this game, it shows something went right which is the defense played well. They did what they had to do. They also learned to trust that Jesse Edwards down low is going to be a big presence. Again, you see a lot in, especially the NBA. I know I keep bringing up examples, but in the NBA, when there is a good rim protector down low, in our case, Jesse Edwards, teams are going to avoid that. So if your three-point line defense is better, which I'm guessing Bayheim is hammering home right now, all of a sudden, no team can do anything that it changes the entire complexion of the game. Because all of a sudden, what do you want to do? Challenge a great three-point defense or challenge a great shot blocker? And I don't trust either of those as an offense going into skews defense if we can get it together. And if Benny Williams plays more, as you said, he is more athletic and he's great defensively. I trust that. I trust him playing more. Samir playing more looks really good defensively. If this team keeps this momentum going on the defensive end, at some point, the offense will come. We know that. It has to come at some point. We're too good of an offensive team to not have it click at the right times. Our problem this season has been our defense, and our offense has been lights out. This is the one game where our offense hasn't been lights out, and we play well defensively. So if the defensive displays stay the same, our offense will come, just give it time, and I, again, am still am very happy with this display. I am very pleased with it, as Sean Tucker may say. Yes, absolutely. Um, the missed shots, you know, you, you mentioned that this wasn't uh, one of Syracuse's better offensive games, and uh, you're, you're dead right. Syracuse shot only 36% overall, only 28% from three-point range in this game. 
Buddy was five for 12 or five for 20 overall, two for nine from three point range. Joe Girard was three for 12, two for nine from three point range. Um, Jimmy Bayheim actually bounced back and had a, a decent game offensively, 21 points, nine of 17 shooting. He was pretty good, made his only free throw uh, with, with five rebounds. But, um, you know, Syracuse shot 36%. It was largely because of Joe and Buddy. They were eight for 32 combined, which is 25%. That is not good. Uh, four for 18 from, from three-point range, which is less than 25%. The rest of the team shot 44% from the floor. That even includes Benny Williams in there at two for seven. So even though Syracuse shot 36%, it was really two guys that were responsible for that. Now, Buddy was getting a lot of double teams. He's taking a lot of tough shots. Uh, there were some questions as to what some of the shots that he took in the lane, whether or not he was fouled, as I mentioned, the officiating. But um, those two guys have to shoot a higher percentage for Syracuse. We've said it before. They are... Um, two of Syracuse's primary scores, and it's going to be tough for Syracuse to win games when they're shooting 25% from the floor. Uh, that's that's just reality. And yes, some of those shots were contested. Yes, there were some shots in the lane where you could have called a foul, but um, they missed wide open shots as well. You know, there were some mid-range jumpers that Buddy had good looks at that he missed. There was a wide open three in overtime when Syracuse was trailing by two for Joe Girard that he missed would have given Syracuse a one point lead in the final minute or so. Um, they got good looks, even though some of their looks were contested and, and missed them. And you don't expect that to happen a lot. There are going to be games where it does happen, but you know, for Syracuse to win games, they need those two guys to play well. And, you know, they, they struggled a little bit offensively. There have been more games than not this year where Buddy Beheim has shot the ball well which is not something I thought would be a problem coming into the season uh, against every time he shot under 45%. We'll go with that. That's a decent number to look at. Uh, against Wake, Miami, uh, UVA, Georgetown, Villanova, Florida State, Indiana, Auburn, Arizona State, VCU, Colgate, Lafayette. Over half the games he shot under 45% from the field. That's not ideal in any world. And they lost most of those games, by the way. There's yeah. a lot of losses in those games. There are outside of Arizona State, Lafayette, and Florida State and uh, Indiana. All of them, all of those are losses. And the Florida State-Indiana games were one possession wins. We've already discussed those. Arizona State, Lafayette, we've discussed that as well. Um, but he's just not shooting the ball well in a majority of games. I don't know what it is. I have to go back and look at the tape more. Obviously, teams are going to defend him better because they know how good of a player he is. But it's slowly starting to become a more a bit of a concern. Now, in the long run, should we be concerned about him shooting poorly? No. At some point, we all know this: a shooter when a shooter gets one good game, when they get hot for one game, and it carries over to the start of the next game, and they stay hot in that game. All of a sudden, it's game. It's game over. It will take him one good game and to start another game hot. We thought the UVA game was it. Five for 10 from three, really nice. And we thought, okay, he'll continue on to the next game, shooting well. Didn't happen. Uh, it's starting to become concerning a bit. But as I just said, a shooter will shoot. 
he's clearly not afraid to shoot the ball. Uh, we all know that. So at some point, it's going to have to get in the dish. It, I, if it doesn't, I, someone may have broken Buddy Beheim. That's, that's all I can think. This is kind of similar, though, to last year as far as Buddy goes, in that he was shooting under 30% from three last year, I think, into early to mid-January. And then he really started turning on, and he ended up, you know, almost up at, at 40%, close to 40% by the time the season ended. So, um, you know, <laughs> the difference is this year, teams are already paying a lot more attention to him than they did last year, but he's turned it on and gotten hot before. And we know at any point he could have a game where he goes eight for 10 from three. And that's going to just sort of change everything around. And that's the time when, you know, he does that against the Duke or North Carolina or something. All of a sudden Syracuse pulls off an upset and he said, well, how did they do that? Well, it's because, you know, they shot 60% from three as a team and buddy was eight for 10 uh, himself. You know, that that's what, what's going to have to happen for Syracuse to beat those teams. But um, you know, he's got to get going. Joe has had more good games shooting the ball than bad this year. He's really only had, you know, three or four bad shooting nights this year. Um, the one thing I'll say about those two is they did have 13 assists combined. So even though they struggled to shoot the ball, they did pass the ball very well, found open teammates, um, et cetera. So there, there were some good parts of their game. Buddy added seven rebounds in addition uh, to his seven points, uh, 17 points. So, um, he impacted the game in other ways, but you know, they've, they've certainly got to be better. And, um, with Joe, that, that kind of brings me to the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is, um, his backup Samir Torrance. He only played five minutes in this game. Um, he had two points and a rebound, but Joe turned it over four times. and wasn't shooting the ball. Well, Joe's biggest asset as a point guard is shooting the ball. That's what he does well. Um, he accumulates assists. He's not necessarily a guy that's going to frequently break down a defense, get in the lane, distribute by kicking, and, and teams are worried about him getting in the lane and finishing, so they've got to collapse, and then he can kick out. That's not what he does. He does a good job of getting Syracuse into the sets that Beheim wants them to run, but he is not that drive into the lane and distribute type of a point guard. That's not his game, but he can impact the game by shooting the ball well and then making the right passes and, and getting Syracuse into their offense. That's what he does as a point guard. When he's not shooting the ball well, that's not to say that he's worthless, but in games where he's not shooting the ball as well, I would think that those would be the games that you'd want to bring Samir Torrance in and have him play a little bit because he is a better defender. He is much more of that get into the lane and distribute type of a point guard than what Joe Girard is break a guy down off the dribble and, and force a defense to collapse because he can finish. And so because his attributes and his skill set are kind of his strengths are where Joe is weak when Joe is not doing his strengths to a high level, bringing in Samir and having him take a few more of those minutes seems to make sense. That didn't happen in this game. Now, I think part of it was because Samir got a steal 
And on that, on the play that he got a steal, he tried to throw almost a three quarters court pass up court and the ball got immediately stolen back. And obviously Jim Beheim was not pleased with that decision um, to steal a Sean Tuckerism, but I still think that given what he has shown in the previous few games, more than five minutes is perhaps warranted. Um, so I was a little surprised to see that. Uh, now, Syracuse was playing good defense for the most part in this game. I just, I was just a little bit surprised to only see five minutes from him. I, I thought he could have given them, you know, maybe five, six, seven more. You're not the only one who's shocked. Uh, I think Jim Beheim is a bit too much blind faith in Joe. I think at some point he puts his blinkers on um, or his shades on and he kind of is just like, okay, Joe's still going to at some point shoot the ball well and he's going to not turn the ball over and all these things, even though he is going to do it at some point. And he has too much belief that Joe is, it feels like at points, the only point guard we have. And as you said, that's not the case. Samir is the distributor. He can penetrate well and kick out. And as we know, we're a good three-point shooting team. Penetrating, kicking out to Buddy Beheim, Jimmy Beheim, Cole Swider, not the worst thing in the world to do. So I think Jim needs to not get a kick in his pants, but at some point it's got to like flip. The switch has to be flicked that we have more than one point guard right now. Uh, and then, and when Jimmy, uh, when uh, Joe isn't shooting the ball well, take him out, bring in Samir, let Samir do his thing. If he's not working well, bring him in and out, figure out who's going to do better, and then kind of roll from there. But he, at the moment, as I said, just has too much belief that Joe needs to stay in or it's not going to work. If Joe comes out, the ship is going to sink. And that's not the case. That's not the case right now. It shouldn't be the case. Yeah. Um, I think that that pretty much says it all. So uh, we talked about the officiating uh, a little bit. And I know that there's plenty who get on me about talking about the officiating uh, on social media. Us discussing officiating on the podcast, (laughs) Mike. No way. Oh, man. See what happens when I get control of a podcast. It all goes to hell because I'm talking about officiating all the time. But um, that's that's the way it is because, you know what? I want to. So we are. Um, You know, I I wrote in uh, one of the things I do after every game is I always write five takeaways, five things that were to me, the important things for Syracuse, either um, something that happened during the game or something that could be a trend or something to monitor moving forward, how it impacts Syracuse moving forward. And the fifth item that I wrote about in this game was the officiating. And I outlined a few of the instances, one of which was the inbounds play that we discussed earlier there were some shots that Syracuse took in overtime where Cole Swider and Buddy Beheim's arms got hit while they were taking jumpers and they weren't called. Um, there were some calls against Syracuse that were flat out bad calls, all true. Before I get into a couple of specifics, um, I want to address the notion that if you discuss bad officiating, you are making excuses for a team that lost. Um, I want to respond to that in two ways. I got a reply on Twitter from my five takeaways article that said, I appreciate the fact that you mentioned the officiating. It wasn't the only reason that Syracuse lost, 
but it was one of them. And that's exactly the point. Syracuse did things that the shooting that we just discussed, um, you know, perhaps a question as to whether Samir should have played a few more minutes, um, but missing open shots, you know, a couple turnovers here and there at key times, like when Syracuse was up two with the ball with 30 something seconds to go. And if they score, that puts them up four or five with 20 seconds to go. And now you're in a great position. They turn it over. Luckily, Wake turned it right back over, but that set up the inbound sequence. So if Syracuse scores previously, you know, there were things Syracuse could have done, mistakes that they didn't have to make that would have changed the way that the game ended up. Part of the way that the game ended up, though, or part of the reason was because of the way it was officiated. It is okay to say Syracuse made mistakes here, here, and here, while also saying the officials made mistakes here, here, and here. And it's always been baffling to me how it is okay to criticize 18 to 22-year-old kids, and since I'm 38, I can call them kids, or a Hall of Fame head coach in Jim Beheim. but it is not okay to criticize 40, 50, 60 year old grown adults um, for for doing a poor job. And part of the reason that I talk about as frequently as I do is because there's no accountability when they have an extremely terrible performance as they did in this game. They're going to go and officiate another big time game the you know, the next day or or a couple of days later. They're not going to be um, reprimanded, get a lesser assignment, et cetera. And that's a problem. There needs to be accountability when you have a performance that's this bad. That doesn't mean every time you miss a call, that means when you have a performance such as this. That said, um, center, front and center in the bad officiating was Teddy Valentine, an official who is affectionately known as TV Teddy. Why? Because whenever they're on television, he makes calls and does his calls in such a way that he believes, or it seems that he believes, that the television audience and the crowd in the stadium is there to watch him, not the game. That's the way that he operates. He always has to to have a certain flair with his calls. He makes strange calls at strange times. And he was, he had his fingerprints all over this game. There was a sequence where um, Jim Beheim was complaining about calls to Teddy Valentine. Teddy Valentine was not having Jim Beheim complaining to him he didn't want any part of it so his response was the very next play to call a foul on frank anselm frank anselm was defending a wake forest player inside his arms were straight up he did not move he stayed stationary he did not initiate contact he did not lower his hands to um, create contact and yet a foul was called on him he was in the perfect defensive positioning exactly how you would teach it and he got called foul why well A very interesting tweet from Mike Waters of the Syracuse Post Standard. And he said, Frank Anselm was called for a foul. His hands were straight up, were straight up. That's why you don't argue with Teddy Valentine, TB Teddy. Which suggests that Teddy Valentine is making calls based on who argues with him. That is not what a good official does. That is a problem. Uh, There were calls on Jesse Edwards, one where they called him for over the back when he jumped straight up, didn't make any contact. Similar plays on the other end were not called that. Jimmy Beheim was called for traveling when all he did was pivot. That, that's a play that happens 10 times a game. It wasn't called to travel any other time either, either team did it. There were 
foul calls in transition where Syracuse made no contact with the official that anticipated there was going to be. Besides going into all the individual calls, I'll give you some of the raw numbers from this game. Because I think, I think when you hear it stated a certain way, it kind of tells you the story of the way that this game was officiated. But Mike, how bad could it possibly be? We're talking about bad officials. Could, how bad could it possibly be? Oh, it can be bad. And it was. So we mentioned earlier that Wake Forest was essentially flat out refusing to go inside when Jesse Edwards was in the game. They were shooting a large percentage of their shots from three-point range. At one point, it was as high as 77% of their shots were at the three-point line. By the time the game was over, Wake Forest had taken just 36% of its shots inside the arc. Syracuse, in comparison, took 61% of its shots inside the arc. So Syracuse was taking almost twice as many shots inside the three-point line. That suggests attacking the rim, being aggressive offensively. Usually, the team that is attacking the rim more frequently is the team that is going to the foul line more frequently. Not so fast, my friend. Syracuse was called for 21 fouls compared to just 11 for Wake Forest. So despite the fact that Syracuse was going inside twice as much as Wake Forest was, Syracuse was called for twice as many fouls as Wake Forest, which led to Wake Forest taking 11 more free throw attempts in a game that went to overtime and was decided by three points. 11 more free throw attempts for a very good free throw shooting team and Syracuse that was shooting 86% in this game, 12 of 14 as a team. But let's even say of those extra 11, Syracuse just shot 60%. Okay, that's seven makes. Syracuse wins. Regulation or overtime. Gotta love it. It, it, it makes a difference. Uh, now, Wake shot a poor percentage from the free throw line. They were... Uh, 64% for the game, 16 for 25. In the second half, they were just 6 of 14 from the free throw line. They did not shoot well from the free throw line in the second half. There's there's no question. They were 8 for 9 in the first half, 2 for 2 in the overtime. So it was the second half where they really had an issue. But that doesn't mean it didn't have an impact on the game because you gave Wake Forest more free throw attempts. Syracuse didn't get Jesse Edwards for as long. Syracuse didn't get as many free throw attempts. Etc. Poor officiated game, not the only reason Syracuse lost, but certainly part of the reason Syracuse lost. Yep. I, everything you said is on, is on the money with officiating. Um, it was not the only reason we lost, but it did not help us uh, at all. And obviously there are exceptions to the rule of shooting more inside means you get more foul calls. Obviously you can get fouls kind of everywhere, but it was particularly bad in this game. There was multiple times where it was just like, I don't know what the officials are seeing, or I don't know how they aren't seeing this. It was very clearly one-sided in terms of officiating. And again, we have discussed it a lot on this podcast over the past few months, officiating, going certain directions, and favoring certain teams, especially based on the home team, and usually not in the carrier dome. Uh, that when Syracuse goes on the road, it feels like we don't get a lot of foul calls. And obviously, 
there is the idea of home court advantage that a home team usually gets less calls in the end, but it was a bit blatant in this game. And it was all summarized by the first topic we discussed, which was that inbounds pass. That was kind of the overarching. If you need one play to figure out what happened in this game, that's it. That everything perfectly well inbounded, but a player fell on buddy, Buddy got shoved. The wake forest player hit it out but it was Wake's ball at the end of the day. Makes no sense how it happened, why it happened, but that is what bad officiating gets you. And again, I do not understand why the NCAA does not do the exact same thing the NBA does in giving out that two-minute report in a game. Be like, in the last two minutes, these calls were missed or were called or something. Give us something to go off of here. They do it in the NBA because they can. The NCAA makes too much money to live with. They can deal with paying 10 more referees to look back at each last two minutes of each game and figure out what was missed and what was correctly called. They can do that. They have the money for it. There's no doubt about it. They can pay that. So do it. At least give us something to be like, okay, these calls were missed. At least that way we know. So if we criticize reps, we understand we're going to get some sort of clarity from the league itself. We're going to be given by the ACC, oh, these three calls were missed. It should have been called the other way. Because when nothing is said about it, and when Jim goes to criticize the ref, he gets fined $20,000, but nothing else happens. We aren't told, oh, the ref messed up. No, we have no idea. We, we obviously know they messed up, but the NCAA is sitting there with their like, sunglasses on, looking directly at it, being like, I see nothing. It, there, it's something. It's happening all the time. If that happens in the national championship game, just imagine the outpouring that will happen. As a Saints fan, I have dealt with horrible calls in big games. They literally changed a rule because of how bad officiating was. But it's not going to happen in the NCAA because they don't care about bad refereeing. They just don't. And it's a problem. And yes, I'm getting on my soapbox. Deal with it, listeners, okay? The referees need to get their act together. The NCAA needs to give us anything. Be like, okay, I know we've seen in the NFL recently with this weird on Twitter, three calls were put out by the head judge. He's like, at this point in the game, I made this call because blank. Was it correct in the end? No, it was not. I messed up here. Even that, for every game, just one huge call you missed. I'll take it. Anything. Please, please, NCAA, please. It's, it is what it is. Um, but we're, we're going to move on and we're going to take a look at Syracuse's next opponent, Pittsburgh, real quick before we wrap this uh, episode up. I'm going to go through their schedule to date so far and then um, a couple of statistics for the Pitt Panthers at Syracuse faces on Tuesday. Uh, Pittsburgh opened the season by losing uh, by 15 points against West Virginia at West Virginia. They follow that up with back-to-back wins over UNC Wilmington and Towson, both close games lost against Vanderbilt at home by 16 points and then lost to UMBC by 10 points at home, lost to Minnesota by a point at home, lost at Virginia by just a point 
they beat the Colgate team that beat Syracuse early in the season. Um, but they also follow that up with a loss to Monmouth, a close win over St. John's, a close win over Jacksonville, a one-point loss to Notre Dame, a three-point loss to Louisville, a two-point win over Boston College most recently. They are 6-9 and on the season, but you'll notice a theme. Most of these games are usually single-digit games. There are a couple outliers, like a 16-point loss to Vanderbilt, 10-point loss to UMBC, but most of the games are one or two score games. So that should tell Syracuse a couple of things. One, this is not a great team. It is a very beatable team. But they don't be surprised if the game is closer than you'd expect just by looking at Pittsburgh's record. Pittsburgh is six and nine. It's only one game worse than Syracuse at seven and eight. But Syracuse has largely played better uh, this season. Pittsburgh is only scoring 62 points a game. That's not great. They're shooting 41% overall, only 31% from three. So they're not a great three-point shooting team. Um, they're an okay free-throw shooting team. Um, they are out-rebounding teams so far on the season. Um, they they turn it over a decent amount at over 13 times per game. So, you know, some some interesting, interesting, interesting uh, statistics there. They're actually the lowest scoring team in the ACC. They score less than Virginia, which plays at the worst pace in the country. Uh, Pittsburgh is the fifth best scoring defense. However, they give up only 65 points per game. Um, They are last in scoring margin. They're one of only two teams who has a negative scoring margin on the season, Georgia Tech being the other. Pittsburgh is last in field goal percentage offense and seventh in field goal percentage defense. They are last in three-point shooting in the ACC. In terms, they are second to work, second to last in number of attempts. They are last in number made and last in percentage so pittsburgh is also 11th in three-point percentage defense worse than syracuse so what does that tell me that tells me that they have a propensity to give up shots from the outside open looks which is good for syracuse they are not a great offensive team also good for syracuse going to be the worst offensive team that syracuse has played probably um since maybe one of the Ivy League teams that they played somewhat recently, although Cornell's a decent offensive team. So, and it's a decent rebounding team, not a great rebounding team. Um, sixth in the conference in block shots, last in the conference in steals. So I, I think this is a, a matchup that that favors Syracuse relatively well, um, that Syracuse should go into the game feeling like, they're the better team. And this is kind of where they can get themselves back on track. Yeah. You nailed it on the head. Uh, their star guy, John Hugley. Uh, he's the one to watch. He's a six, nine forward for them. Uh, puts up uh, just about 16 points a game shooting around 46% from the field. Um, he's the main guy to watch. Also a good rebounder with little over eight rebounds per game. So he's the man to watch. Uh, also, you left out pit loss to the Citadel by 15 uh, on their opening game, which for those keeping track at home, the Citadel is six and nine as well. Uh, they are not great. Um, so they lost opening night to them. 
Uh, we are favored uh, 85.5% to 14.5% in this game. If Syracuse doesn't win this game by double digits, I don't know what to make of it. Um, I would expect Jim Beheim to be real mad in practice and be hammering in a lot of things. As you said, this team doesn't put up a lot of points, so the defense should have itself a good game. And as you said, they don't play great three-point defense. I would expect the offense to score a whole bucket worth. Uh, I would I I hope Syracuse puts up eighty. I want to see an eighty-point Syracuse win. If you give up somewhere in the sixties, and you score eighty, that's a perfect game for Syracuse, and I will take that all day, every day. That is what I would expect to happen uh, if I was if I'm being completely realistic here yes and we'll see what happens we will have a full breakdown for you in our next episode of that game and also continue to look ahead to the rest of Syracuse's schedule but that'll do it for episode 28 of the Believe in Syracuse podcast presented by Bet Online and Hoffman Sausage Company for Kyle F I'm Mike McAllister and we'll see you next time Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.